Good morning. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's weird. I mean, we were only gone a week, but it was a week on both ends, and just kind of, we came, we came home on Sunday, and uh, my head popped off the pillow on Monday morning. I, I took, we drove, so uh, when uh, we left on Saturday, we drove, you know, during the day on Saturday and stopped and spent the night, and then drove again on Sunday and then got home in the early evening, and I took Monday off in addition to the rest of the week just because they all got to sleep in the van and I was awake the whole time. So my head popped off the pillow on Monday morning and I thought, oh no, did I tell my wife I'm going to New Jersey on Wednesday? <laughs> yeah, I forgot. So, so, so we came home from vacation and we went back to work on Tuesday and then Wednesday I brought my clothes with me, went to work, we left from work, drove to New Jersey, met with a client, drove back from to New Jersey Thursday night. And, and in the meantime, everyone's sending me these emails, get back to work, we, you know, your vacation's over. And I'm like, wait a minute. I was, it, it was kind of the, you know, you, you enough resting. And I'm like, I'm not resting at all at, at that point. But um, it was a fantastic week. We just want to say thank you for allowing us the, the opportunity to be able to, to get away. And it was a great, I got tons of pictures if you want to see them. I'm not going to subject you to them mandatory slideshows or put anything up on the, on the screen. Um, but we did some cool, cool stuff. Uh, one of the most amazing zoos I've ever been to in my life. Little, small, little zoo in Melbourne, Florida. It's absolutely incredible. Um, we got to bodyboard in the ocean and got to see a rocket launch at Cape Canaveral and uh, just did some really, really cool stuff. Um, this morning... We are continuing in our series, The Easter Experience. And if you haven't had an opportunity to um, participate in a life group or, or you're, you're not, have never participated in a life group, um, let me encourage you, this semester is the, is the semester for you to, to join. Um, this material that we're using for our, our life group curriculum is amazing. Um, I, I was absolutely blown away a year ago when I saw it and then forgot about it because I looked at it a year ago. And, and then when we sat down and had our life group on Friday, it was, it's incredible. It's good, good stuff. So if you are not in a life group um, and would like to be, we've got four life groups. I know the bulletin only says that we have three, um, but our Hilton life group fired up again. Uh, this week, and it meets at Mike Shambry's house on when uh, Thursdays, right? Mike not Mike, not Mike Shambry, <laughs> Mike Murphy. It ended in an E. I got confused. Um, you guys are at seven, right? At, at Mike Murphy's. And so, if you're not in a life group, we've got one in Hilton, we've got one in Spencerport, we've got one in Ogden, we've got one in Brockport. Um, please, it's not too late to plug into a life group, and they meet during the day. If you're a day person. If you're a night person, there's multiple options. Don't miss the semester's life group. It's going to be really good. And, and I'm so excited that, that the, as it leads us to Easter, what God's going to do in our hearts and lives and in the lives of our, our church. So just quickly before we, we jump in, today um, is supposed to be Community Leader Sunday where we, we send out invitations to our town government, our village government, our county government, everybody, and, and invited them to come to Community Leadership Sunday um, because we just wanted to recognize them and let them know that we appreciate everything that they do for our community and, and just let them know that we, we recognize their service and, and wanted to honor them. Um, we were set for the mayor to be here, and we thought that was, I was thrilled that the mayor was coming. And then while we were on vacation, I got an email that the mayor wasn't coming and so it's Community Leadership Sunday, and I want to, before we jump into the message, pray for our community leaders, um, regardless of whether any of them come. Uh, and I don't know if there's anyone here from community leadership. It's pretty much us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the leadership that you've placed in our community, God, on the village, on the village level on the town level, on the county level. Lord, we just pray that you would guide them as they govern our, our, our area. Lord, for Mayor Lee, we ask your blessing over him. We thank you for 
the, just the, his willingness to allow us to even be here in this building, the blessing that the village of Hilton has been to us. Lord, we just pray your blessing, your provision, your wisdom over Mayor Lee and, and Janet and the, the other people that work here in the village offices, for our town government, for our new town supervisor. Lord, we pray that you would give him wisdom as he leads the town of Parma. We pray for uh, the town board, that, that you would guide them and, and give them wisdom as they make decisions that affect this community. But I know that there are, are people who are believers that serve on the town board. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them, give them a voice to share the hope of Christ to our community leadership and, and to our, our area. But for our county leadership, for, uh, for Maggie Brooks and for our, our sheriff's department, for the, the fire department here in Hilton, we pray for your protection over them. We ask, God, that as they are out protecting and serving us, Lord, that you would protect them. Lord, that for those that don't know you, we pray that you would draw them into a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, for, for those that grabbed at the beginning of the year, we put out um, prayer cards for 2012 that listed all of our community leaders. And I, I think at one point I sent out a, a prayer, one of the prayer updates, just asking for prayer for our community leadership. Uh, Jim Roos, who I believe goes to Christ Community in Brockport, is on the town board here in Parma. And when I let him know that we were going to be doing this, he, he said, well, I have a prayer request for the town, and began to tell me about this awful situation that was going on between the town supervisor and the new highway department guy. And it was, it was ugly, almost to the point of going to blows. Um, and, and not even just fighting, like having to call the police in because they were just that not getting along. And, and I, I said, are, is it, are you comfortable with me sharing this publicly to say we need to pray for this? And he said, oh, no, I mean, it's on public record um, that, that we've had to. And he said, please pray. So when Jim called me to ask, he, he asked if we were still having Community Leader Sunday, um, I, I said, because he had responsibilities at Christ Community this morning, that he would have to cancel to be here. And I said, no, ush, be the usher that you're supposed to be, follow through with your responsibilities. Um, but I asked, how, how is that situation going? And, and he said, Rob, you will not believe the turnaround in the situation. Um, our prayers, your prayers have made a tremendous impact. He said that um, the, the town, when the new supervisor came in, um, he began to reach out to the highway superintendent, and now he sees them like hanging out and talking to each other at the town office, and, and that never, never happened. Um, and so that situation has been uh, almost completely resolved, and we believe absolutely as an answer to prayer, ours and, and our communities. Um, so praying for our community leaders is something that we are responsible to do as a part of this community. We don't just come in, and come in here and, and do our thing and then leave. Um, the, the scriptures clearly say that we are to honor, to recognize the authorities that God has placed over us. And, and so regardless of what political party they are in, uh, we pray because God's placed them over us. And, and so I um, just wanted to share that with you. Before we jump in, I thought that was pretty exciting. Good news. Um, I'm not going to control the slide deck from here just because of the issues we had last time. So if you've got it, that'd be great. Um, this morning, I want to talk to you about um, how Jesus was rejected. He was rejected by, by almost um, every people group. And, you know, I don't know about you. But rejection hurts, doesn't it? Um, it's, it's hard to be the last kid standing on, on the, the ball court when, when you're divvying up teams. And um, it was funny, I, when we were having uh, our, our meal with our client, um, the client uh, on my day job, I'm a project manager for a clinical trials company. And so we were meeting with a client of a, a multi probably billion dollar company in this incredibly fancy restaurant, um, kind of the, the schmooze, 
dinner before the meeting the next day. And, and we're talking, and she, the, one, of the, one of the team members from this company is talking to me about what they do for fun um, in, in their company. And she said that they play dodgeball. And that there's a corporate dodgeball league that they play in. And I'm like, I want to play dodgeball. Um, and it was just, but then at the same time, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Do I want to play dodgeball? I, I remember being the last kid picked for dodgeball, right? You, know, you don't want Dickerson on your team. Because um, not only because I couldn't catch, I could not get out of the way. And so I was a double liability. I mean, I wasn't even good as a shield, you know, I, but that rejection hurts, right? Um, sitting by yourself in the lunchroom, hoping to not be the last person picked, uh, waiting for someone to invite you to the dance, skipped over for a promotion at work that you thought that you had just absolutely all wrapped up. This is going to be mine. And bang, they pick the other guy, the weaselly guy, the guy that you're like, really? You picked him? It's interesting that, that rejection actually does hurt. Um, that there was, a, as a scientific fact, there was an article that, that kicked in the gut feeling that you get when you feel um, rejected actually generates physical symptoms. Um, and, and according to the article, they've done brain imaging, which with what I do, uh, my company uh, that I work for Monday through Friday, that's all we do is clinical trials and, and imaging. So MRI, CT scans, all that kind of stuff. I do that stuff all day long. But brain imaging studies show that a social snub actually physically can affect the brain precisely the same way that visceral physical pain does. When someone hurts your feelings, it really hurts you, states Matt Lieberman. Uh, he was a social psychologist at the University of California, and he worked on this study. Um, and in the study, they had 13 volunteers who were given a task that they, they didn't know um, related to an experiment in social snubbing. So they didn't know what they were, what they were in for. And so writing in the journal Science, Lieberman uh, writes that the brains of the volunteers lit up when they were rejected in virtually the same way as a person experiencing physical pain. Wow. Um, and, you know, that article goes on to talk about how in the English language we use physical metaphors to talk about social pain, like a, a broken heart or hurt feelings. And, and really, in reality, there's good reason for us to say that. And so the, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be rejected by men. And as Jesus was crucified, as he was being dismissed by the soldiers and were rejected by the religious leadership and by the people, in Matthew 27, uh, Jesus is brought before Pilate. And, and after considering the accusations and talking to Jesus, Pilate couldn't find anything to bring against him. There was no evidence that was overwhelming. There was nothing that they could point to that they, they could nail uh, Jesus too. And so in verses 22 and 23, um, I think we've got it up there on the board, Pilate asks them the most important question that anyone will ever answer. Pilate says to them, what then, what, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? It's a good question. Question we should still be asking ourselves today, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they shouted back, crucify him. Why? Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder. Crucify him. You know, it's sad because instead of answering this question for himself, for Pilate to answer that question, what what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Pilate did what a lot of people do. He looked to the crowd to answer his question for him. He looked to the crowd to say, what are the majority doing? What are they thinking? What are, what are, what are they about? And, and that's how he would decide what he was going to do 
with Jesus. That's kind of scary. Because, you know, the majority opinion may be a popular way to determine truth. Um, it's certainly not reliable, is it? The majority once believed that slavery was acceptable. The majority in Germany once thought that Hitler was a good idea. Majority once thought that wearing bright all-star Converse sneakers and parachute pants was a great fashion statement. Now, the Converse shoes are actually back. My daughter wears them. Um, but thank goodness the parachute pants are not. Yeah, right? Give it time. It's coming. And so we're left wondering. You know, it's interesting. He asks the people, what do they want to do with Jesus and they painfully reject him. It's not just, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, they were literally screaming at the top of their lungs, crucify him, like as a mob, roaring. Why was Jesus rejected? So this morning, as we dig into this a little deeper, we're going to answer that question. And, and, and as we go through it, it's kind of, Sad to say that things really haven't changed all that much. That many people still reject Jesus. They still, if put in the same situation, would cry out, crucify him. Jesus claimed to be God. And this claim infuriated the religious leaders. They, they literally were the, the, the concept that someone could claim to be God. The, the idea, you know, we don't really get all that upset about blasphemy anymore. Blasphemy used to be a really big deal. And, and obviously in this time, it was worthy of death. It, it was, you know, it was not just a, you know, it, it's, I, I think there's a, even a website now devoted to how do you commit the unpardonable sin. And it lists all the things that you can do so that you can commit the unpardonable sin, and then be completely um, separated from God. And like, it's, it's like a to-do list of how to be completely, yeah. Um, yeah, he is. But the chief priests, look at what it says in, in Matthew um, 26, verses 59 to 61. It says the chief priests and the, the entire um, Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence. I've got a different version here that's, that's up there, but that's okay. Um, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any, even though they brought in false witnesses. So think about that. They're trying desperately to find something to pin on him. They bring in liars to, to lie against him in court, and even the liars couldn't get it right to put enough. I mean, they're planning this, and even with their own plan, even with bringing in false testimony, they couldn't come up with, an, with anything to pin the death penalty on him. Finally, two came forward and declared, uh, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days which was something he had actually said. So it wasn't even one of the liars that came up with the evidence. And when Jesus had said this, he, of course, was referring to destroying the temple of his own body, not the physical temple in Jerusalem. He meant that in another three days, his figurative language would become crystal clear, that when I destroy this temple, I will raise it up again in three days. Look at what it says in verses 62 through 64. Says, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand, in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then look what it says in verse 65 and 66. It says, Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Blasphemy! 
Why do we need other witnesses? You've all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. This is absolutely crucial for us to grasp in our relationship with Christ and in in just understanding who we are as Christians. Um, C.S. Lewis um, has a a very powerful quote that um, it says this. It says, either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It's that whole liar, lunatic, or Lord. Jesus himself claimed to be divine. We're going to look at those passages in John chapter 5. Jesus heals the lame man on the Sabbath, and the Jews were upset. And in verse 17, he says to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I, and so am I. My father, and so am I. John 8, verse 58, says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. In the Jewish mindset, that was earth-shattering. Abraham was the guy that they held up there as the guy. And then Jesus said, before Abraham was even born, I am. Not I was. He used the, the description of who God was when he said, who shall I say sent me to when he talked to Moses and said, how am I going to tell these people who God is? God said, tell them I am has sent me. In John, verse, uh, John chapter 14, verses 9 and 11, Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work that you've seen me do. It's tough for us to to understand this mystery. How God, the, the eternal creator of everything, would choose to constrict himself into the confinement of a physical body. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. How does that work that Jesus was fully God and fully man? Look at what it says in uh, Matthew chapter 16. And they're, they're in Caesarea Philippi, and he asks this question to his disciples in verse 13. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they go on and, and answer, you know, a couple of different things. Uh, but in, in verse uh, 16, Peter says, or actually, no, not, that's a different, um, where they, they said some people say that you're John the Baptist and some people say that was recorded in a different passage. But in Matthew 16, he says, then who, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, he said, you are the Messiah. The Son of the Living God. Is Colossians two nine on there too? I can't remember if I put that on the slide. Not there. Okay. Colossians two nine says that for in Christ all the fullness of the deity or the Godhead lives in bodily form. So where do we stand on this? Do we really believe that Jesus was God? Um, and, and for some that struggle, uh, I, I don't think that anyone here does struggle, but if you are, you're talking with people who might be struggling with this, let's look at some things that we can look at as evidence to the, to the truth of this. Think of this. Consider the fulfillment of prophecy. 
Luke 22:44, Jesus said, "Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms." And when we look at all of those prophetic words, all of those things that were given in the Old Testament that pointed to who the Messiah was, um, these fulfilled prophecies are as convincing as fingerprints or DNA evidence to say that that this man, this one person, fulfills these prophecies. Prophecies like a virgin birth in Bethlehem, being crucified with robbers, before his crucifixion had even been thought of. And think about that. that The prophecy says that he would be crucified. That prophecy was written hundreds and hundreds of years before crucifixion had even been thought of. Being buried in the tomb of a rich man. These prophecies reveal the divinity of Christ. Um, and, you know, and I know that sometimes we can say, yeah, okay, well, you can kind of kind of write things in. Um, you know, I know that, that my friend, is, he's a huge fan of George Carlin. And George Carlin makes a complete mockery of Christianity and faith and, and belief. And, and I remember the, some of the Christian comedians, not Christian comedians, comedians in the 80s talking about Scripture and how people would, uh, you know, it's, the, the Bible is really, really old. And how can we know that what the Bible says now is really what happened then? And throughout the ages that, you know, you could, they could have changed things. That Jesus said this, but oh man, we can't record that. We'll write it as this. Um, what if those fulfillments were staged? What if they, you know, found ways to make it look like that they were fulfilled? Well, there's the prophecy that says the Messiah will ride triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey. You could stage that. If you know that was going to happen, you could try to, you know, buy a whole herd of donkeys and, and make sure that, you know, every time you ride into town, you're riding in on a donkey. You could stage that. Um, not hard. He could have, could have literally engineered his crucifixion, um, knowing that at the time that that was the method of execution, it was not a, an uncommon thing. Crucifixion was very common. It, it was a very public statement that people were very familiar with. He could have engineered it. But not many can be engineered. Not the mass quantity of, I, I believe it's over 350 prophecies that all can be fulfilled when you look at the life of Christ. Um, you can't... Um, you can't engineer where you're going to be born. You can't engineer that men will gamble for your clothes and at the point of your death. Couldn't guarantee that that would happen. You can't fake the prophecy of performing miracles while being constantly surrounded by people who would want to disprove those. You can't fake those. So... What if, what if they're just coincidence? What if it's just kind of like it just kind of happens? You know, this weekend all the planets are going to be in alignment. And What if just by coincidence Jesus happened to fall into all of these different spots? And, and, and uh, Peter Stoner is a, a science professor who works uh, with 600 students to calculate the mathematical probability of uh, a number of, of Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in one person. So, so they did the math. And so there are over 350 prophecies, but they concluded, um, and they only figured 48. I mean, why 48 and not 50? I'm not really sure if the math is easier for that number. But they said that the chances of Jesus fulfilling 48 of the 350 that he fulfills, but just fulfilling 48 of those is one in 10 to the 157th power chance. Um, and that's a really, really big number. And I, I, I contemplated getting a, a, a whiteboard and putting a 10 and then putting 157 zeros after it. Um, but Lee Strobel did a much better job of it. So I, I just want to share what Lee did. Uh, he wanted to understand that number, 1 in 10 to the 157th power so he called a scientist and he said, how small is an atom? Small, right? 
tiny. And the scientists said that an atom is so small that it takes a million of them lined up to equal the width of a human hair. A million atoms lined up equals the width of one of our hairs. And so um, Strobel then asked the scientists, he said, has anybody calculated the approximate, the approximate number of atoms in the entire known universe? And amazingly, the scientists said yes. That they've, they've figured, somebody's got way too much time on their hands. Um, completely off the side, did anybody notice or see in the news about the team of scientists in Japan who've created a gun that makes people shut up? It's this amazing gun, and it has a microphone on it, and when you speak, the microphone records your voice speaking, and then it plays it back to you just out of phase, and so when your brain hears the voice coming back at you, but it's off from what you just said, your brain goes haywire, and you're like, go, go, and you stutter, and you can't, you can't speak. So it's the shut-up gun. Again, way too much time on people's hands. Um, although, you know, sitting in a really long, boring lecture, the shut-up gun might be... And then maybe you're sitting here today thinking, oh, the shut-up gun might be a good idea. <laughs> there might be, you know, for husbands or, I don't know. I'm just kidding, just kidding. Or wives, or wives. I know, I was, I was kidding, I was kidding. <laughs> for Christmas, I want. Back to my notes. I know, I know, I don't know if I can close it. Pandora's box is open. Okay. So he asked them if anybody had calculated the numbers. The scientists said yes. And based on those numbers, Strobel concluded that the odds of Jesus fulfilling 48 prophecies would be the same as trying to find one specific predetermined atom among a trillion, 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 billion atoms spread out over our universe. Take one atom throw it out there, and then go try to find that one atom. Are the, are the same odds that one person would fulfill 48, and Jesus fulfilled over 350. So just his fulfillment of prophecy is evidence enough for me, but let's keep going because there's more. We can look at his uncompromised character. When you look at who Jesus was, that nobody, nobody could get closer to Jesus than Peter and, and James and John. They were like the inner circle. These were the guys that, that, that John actually kind of went so far as to, when he wrote his book, referred to him as the one whom Jesus loved. How arrogant is that? That in my own book, that I would identify myself not as, hey, this is Rob, but it's, no, I'm the favorite one. That, that John said, in him is no sin. Peter said that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So just by that, his character validates him as the Son of God and gives credibility that his claim to be divinity is, is, is accurate. Um, his miraculous power. Jesus said in John 10, don't you even believe unless I do miracles? He did amazing, miraculous signs. In John 10.25, Jesus said, The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. Here's another one. His avoidable death. He could have avoided the cross. All he had to do was say, No, I'm not. And all of it goes away like that. John 10, 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Because remember, he was on trial for blasphemy. All he had to do was keep his mouth shut, and he could have stopped the nails. His verifiable resurrection. Acts 2, 32, Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, 
and we, as he's looking out at this crowd, and we are all witnesses of this fact. He appeared to more than 500 people afterwards. He ate. He had breakfast. He hung out before he ascended into heaven. He appeared to to multiple groups of people. For Thomas, he even physically said, Tom, come here. Put your hands in the hole. Stick it in the hole. It's still there. And We can look at his faithful followers. This is amazing. When Jesus died at his death, all of his disciples ran and hid. They were gone. They abandoned him. They were confused. They were terrified. They were scared to death. They were next. But after the resurrection, everything changed. After he rose again, they boldly and courageously told people of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And history tells us that the closest followers of Christ, that they were so fully convinced that he was God, not only did they teach it, they paid The same price. They died for it. Matthew was killed by a sword in Ethiopia. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt, after being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead because he would not stop preaching about Christ. Luke was hung in Greece. Peter, a history and and tradition, uh, whether or not it's accurate or not, uh, the method of his crucifixion, but they, tradition says that Peter was actually crucified upside down because he did not count himself worthy to die in the same manner as Christ. And, and you know, as excruciating, when we get the word excruciating from crucifixion, um, being crucified upside down with all of that blood rushing into his head must have been awful. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India during a missionary trip. And Jude, the brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. His brother. You would think that if, that if all of it was bunk, that at least people in the family would finally be like, you know what, guys, we just made it up. Right? Ha ha, joke's over but was willing to stand there and become a human pincushion because he believed and knew the truth that Christ was raised. There are a lot of people, and maybe you've heard this before, there are a lot of people who will die um, for lies that they believe to be true, but no one dies for something that they absolutely know is untrue, not willingly. They didn't just believe, they knew. So, secondly, Jesus, the reason that people rejected him, number one, because he claimed to be God. Number two, they rejected him because Jesus didn't fit what they wanted. Jesus wasn't what they expected. They were expecting something completely different. They had been looking and longing for the Messiah. And in their minds, the Messiah was going to come and completely wipe out all of Israel's enemies. He's going to come riding in like like Gandalf in two towers, coming up over the rise on a big white horse with bright white light shining behind with a whole host of enemies army, you know, and, and, and cavalry, and the Messiah's job was to come in and wipe out the Romans, and Jesus comes in on a donkey. Wait a second. He's supposed to come in and be this conquering king, right? He didn't fit the mold of what the Messiah was supposed to look like. His kingdom, look at what it says. Uh, I don't know if I've got these on the next slide. Okay. You know what? It's out of order. Go to the last slide because I re-saved it. Thank you. Um, His kingdom was spiritual, not political. He came to say, my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is here. And and he said to Pilate in John 18.36, he said, my kingdom 
is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. His kingdom was spiritual, not political. Look at this. He didn't keep their religious traditions. He let the disciples eat grain without washing their hands. He healed on the Sabbath. He was determined to show people that a relationship with God was not about legalistically following a list of rules. That having a relationship with God was more than that. Look at what he did. He associated with the wrong people. He willingly and repeatedly chose to hang out with people whose society rejected. And that's amazing to me. When you think about um, how he chose... In, in, in his economy, the misfits were just as valuable as, as the rich and the famous and the powerful. He said crazy things, like the first will be last. He was a threat to the authority of the religious leaders. On two separate occasions, what did he do in the temple? He went charging in there with, with uh, whips in his hands and kicks out the whole economic system and says, my house is to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Who was he talking to? Religious leaders. These were the guys that were, and, and, and this is kind of scary, um, he, he, these were the community leadership that he called whitewashed sepulchers and broods of vipers. Took their, he took their profitable business and, and brought it to a screeching halt. And they would try to catch him all the time. They would try to catch him and trap him with questions that they thought were impossible to answer. And uh, he always answered them. Number three, now we'll go back to the last thing, the reason why People reject Jesus. Number one, they rejected him because he claimed to be God. Number two, they rejected him because he didn't fit their mold of what they thought it was supposed to be. And then number three, they reject Jesus because Jesus demands life change. He offers us grace and forgiveness freely. Right? Everybody in agreement with that? Grace is and, and forgiveness is free. But he also requires of us complete surrender. In John 8, Jesus was teaching a crowd in the early morning, and we don't know what that subject was. We don't know what it was that he was teaching on. But his teaching soon was quickly interrupted by a group of religious leaders, and they brought a woman to him, and they said that she had been literally caught in the act of adultery. And you know the sad thing that I, that I, I believe, uh, I can't prove it, doesn't, Scripture doesn't say it, I believe honestly that the, the Pharisees set her up. However they orchestrated it, they made her believe that whatever she was getting into was genuine and real, maybe with a Pharisee, where he seduced her and then in the act they came rushing in can't prove it, but I believe honestly they set this poor girl up. And where's the guy? Yeah. And they only brought her. I wonder why. I wonder why. So they bring her to him and they say she was caught in the act. There's not a question of her guilt. We've got witnesses. They say, what should we do to this woman? And if Jesus said, well, let her go, then he's undermining the law of Moses. And if he said, stone her, then all of his talk of forgiveness and grace gets tossed out the window. He's in a pickle. How does he answer the question? So 
So Jesus answers them and he says, as they're all standing there with rocks and bricks in their hands, ready. One passage says that he, he bent down and he, he scribbled in the sand um, something, like he's doodling in the sand. That, that always to me is amazing. That at this moment where this woman's life is hanging in the balance, he's doodling in the sand. And you might think that, that that's callous. Uh, my grandfather um, had a unique perspective on it, and, and I don't know if it's true. It's, again, one of those things. But my grandfather always assumed that, that his doodling was he was writing names in the sand, and he was writing the names of the religious leaders, and then said that whosoever is without sin, and I think that the, the emphasis was whosoever is without sin, this sin, maybe. Let them throw the first stone as he's written their names in the sand. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, the leaders dropped their stones and walked away. Jesus looks at her and he says, Neither do I condemn you. And the story ends with these words. Jesus says to her, he says, Now go and leave your life of sin. Grace is given and change is expected. He demands us to change our lives. We can't continue to do whatever we want the way that we want it. Grace and forgiveness, absolutely they are free. But we are then required to live lives of complete surrender. And that is costly. To choose to sacrifice our lives, to lay our lives down, that's costly. We sang it this morning. Lord, lead me to the cross. Rid myself of all that I am. That's costly. So a lot of people reject Jesus and they hide behind lots of different smoke screens. They may see things like the Bible is full of contradictions. They may say that the church is full of hypocrites. Yep, it's true. Church is full of hypocrites. There are people here who are hypocrites. Done it. Been it. There we go. Um, you know, it's one of those things where people always say that, you know, the church would be perfect. Um, if it just weren't for the people. <laughs> yeah, get cleaned up because, you know, you're not worthy. And, and they, oh, I can't come to church. If I came into church, the walls would fall in on me. Right? You've heard that all before. They say maybe that they don't believe that Jesus is really God's son. And, and eventually, you know, it's, it's clear. People are just going to continue to make excuses because they're, they're not rejecting Jesus out of some intellectual objection or some theological hang-up. The reason they're rejecting Jesus is because, quite simply, they don't want to change their lives. I like my life the way that it is. As messed up and screwed up as it is. Rejection hurts. We've all experienced the, the reality of that here in this room. I know it. Garrison Keeler, the guy from Prairie Home Companion, my dad loves this guy. He said he remembers the pain of rejection as a kid when two teams were choosing sides for baseball. And he regard he recalls the pain of being the skinny kid with the glasses with the glasses who was never chosen first or with much enthusiasm. Kind of like the oh yeah, we'll take Keeler. This morning, I want you to know, I want you to, to hear and to recognize that the cross is the ultimate symbol for us of being chosen. God has not rejected you. In fact, through Christ, He accepts you and He welcomes you. Scripture says that we love God because He loved us first. 
So the question that I asked at the very beginning of the message, same one that Pilate was faced, what will you do with this Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I stand here today and and I look around the room and and I see family and friends and people that I, I know have relationships with you, but God, I don't know everything you do. Father, there may be some sitting here this morning who are struggling with this. What do I do with Jesus? How do I, how do I make all of this fit? Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to see the truth of who you are, that you are God, and that you offer salvation to us. Father, maybe there's people here this morning and they're not struggling with their relationship with you, but maybe they're struggling with rejection. That feeling that that literally comes with a physical, painful sensation. Lord, I pray that you would bring your restoration and your healing to their hearts this morning. That you are the only one. That God, we, we can't fix each other. We're broken people trying to fix broken people and the only thing that we can can turn to, the only one that we can turn to to heal the brokenness from our rejection is you. Father, help us to remember what Julie said during communion. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for the price you paid for us. Your death was avoidable and you chose it for me. What will we do with you this week? Help us, God, at work, at home, in our neighborhoods. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, pray you have a fantastic week. Um, like we say, as, as often as we can remember this week, be careful what you watch, be careful what you listen to, be careful what you talk about. Um, if you're not in a life group, I strongly, as strongly as I can recommend, encourage, uh, ask, beg, plug into a life group. If you don't know where they are, come see Jamie or I, and we'll tell you when and where and how to get there. Um, not too late to get into a life group. And um, have a fantastic week. Thank you.